This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book and Timber Framing for the Rest of Us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, You'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at newsociety.com. So yeah, this interview has been on my podcasting bucket list for a long time. Like so many others, I have been intrigued by Alan's work since I saw his iconic TED Talk a few years back. Now, the promise of the ability to restore grassland ecologies through careful managed grazing made so much sense to me. Alan adeptly explained how he learned how to mimic the migration patterns of herd animals on the plains of the African savanna by bunching them together to imitate predator pressure and then to move them through paddocks to allow the land to rest and recover in between impact cycles. Now through careful observation he learned how to time these grazing and rest cycles in such a way that the perennial grasses could grow larger than ever thought possible and so many other healthy functions of the land were restored in turn. It was really inspiring. Now, it seems so simple and yet has marked a revolution in ranching and livestock management around the world, giving rise to the prominence of holistic management through the Savory Institute and an ever-expanding network of savory hubs around the world. Now, I myself dabbled in the core teachings, which are based around working with whole systems rather than reductionist scientific methods, and defining one's own holistic context within the whole under management. Now from there you can learn to make decisions based on the quality of life you desire for yourself and for those you love, and then assess the resources that you need to produce or acquire to maintain that quality of life indefinitely. Now I began to see these principles pop up in other books I was reading, and Alan's teachings were quoted in nearly all of the courses on regenerative agriculture that I came across. Many of my mentors have cited this framework as the foundation on which they design farms and manage ecologies as well. The pieces just kept coming together. Now recently, I finally committed and enrolled in the Holistic Management Accredited Professional course offered by 3LM, which is the Savory Hub in the UK, and which is responsible for training many of the other managers and trainers that I've connected with around Europe. Now, all of this led me to play hooky on my weekly online training and finally get to speak with the man himself. And to be honest, this whole preamble was to try and explain why I sound so nervous on this interview. And of course, just as Murphy's Law would have it, when I finally got Alan on the call, my connection began to fail me. So with the combination of me sounding much like I did back on the early sessions of this show and some annoying glitchy audio sound issues, which I promise that I mostly cleaned up in the post-production, I invite you to have a listen to the first of a two-part call with Alan Savory, in which we explore some of the insights that he has gained from decades of teaching and developing this framework all around the world. Now, in this first half, we start by talking about what Alan is working on these days and what he still sees as the unfinished business of a very long career. 
We dissect some of the more challenging concepts of holistic management, both to grasp and to teach. And Alan uses some of my inept use of language to illustrate some common misunderstandings that arise with newcomers like myself. Now, if you're interested in getting a chance to hear Alan Savory speak live and ask him some questions of your own, there are still a few spots open to register for the expert panel call that I'm hosting with him and Rudolf Bueller of the Best Farmers Association this upcoming Wednesday at 8 p.m. Central European time. It's free to register and I'll be posting the link on the Discord channel, which you can access through our website or our Instagram page. And with all of that out of the way, I will now hand things over to Alan Savory. I'm sure people, you're, get, you're used to getting asked all the time about the holistic management program and such, but I'm really curious as to what it is you're working on specifically now. What are some of the projects and the things that really have you motivated at the moment? Well, Oliver, the, the one thing that's got me motivated is I'm, I'm more worried about the future for young people than I've ever been in my life. I've got to be realistic. I'm 86 now, and you know, I'm running on spare parts and batteries, and I've been shot twice and had polio and malaria and many things. And so, you know, with the best will in the world, I've, in four years' time, I'll be 90. I've, I'm, I'm slowing down. And so I'm trying to think what can I do in my remaining years, you know, with all the experience I have of. 65 years of developing these, this concept that I believe is so vital for the future of humanity. What can I do? There's so many good people in the movement now, the regenerative movement, um, centered as it has to be on holistic management. Nothing will be regenerative unless we address the root cause of the problem, which is reductionist management, which no scientist could, could argue. And um, there's so many good people, and that's expanding so fast under the leadership of younger people now that I'm not needed there. I'm like an old horse can be put out to pasture. So I'm trying to think, well, what can I do? And, and I really believe that everything we're doing and the wonderful progress that people are making, and every day I'm, I'm seeing better, all the billions of people out there, how many would even watch this? Uh, or listen to this. It's it's fine, fine, fine number. It's it's almost meaningless. Um, so we know that the only way change occurs is as you're doing it by getting knowledge out to people like this. Change in a nearly really new direction. This is how it occurs. And if I look at just the grazing aspects of my work, just discovering that. We cannot solve climate change without livestock. Just discovering that, um, it has gone so many directions, been so diluted that most of what's being called regenerative grazing today will just lead to desertification and climate change. People are just diluting it. And I, I keep using the example of, of language. You know, the English and the Dutch language got to South Africa, southern tip of Africa, about the same time. 300 years ago, whenever it was. And uh, today, English is understandable all over the world. Uh, but the Dutch in South Africa is only understandable in South Africa. Why is that? See, one group of people around the world kept in touch through London, through trade, and kept the language developing. 
until it has the biggest vocabulary of any language, I believe, uh, now. Whereas the Dutch in South Africa just talk to themselves and it diluted and diluted to where it's not even intelligible to a Dutchman today in, in Holland. Um, so we've got that center to try to keep the knowledge coordinated and hopefully prevent too much dilution so that like using the flying example for thousands of years, we couldn't fly. But once the Wright brothers learned how, within 70 years, we were on the moon because human creativity could be released and people could develop as they did thousands of models of planes and rockets and things. But all the ones that diluted the principle of flight, any of those principles, they crashed quickly and didn't dilute the, the knowledge. And with holistic management, you know, we discovered how to practice it in 1983 was I, about where I would put the breakthrough when we finally knew that we'd got it, what was causing the problem and how to correct it. And we could find no further flaws, logic or science in it. We had 2000 scientists working with me. When, when we reached that point, that was exciting. But instead of being on the moon now, or halfway there, we've just in this dispersed knowledge and I'm looking at people excited and training, and it's wonderful, but they're excited and training on stuff I was doing 60 years Only now is that catching up with some of that. But we need faster, and that's where my mind has gone. How can we take this wonderful effort of everybody but we know that because of incremental change and dilution and many languages and we have around the world, we know it's going to get diluted and uh, more and more uh, controversy and so on, as we see going on, more and more ignorant criticism of what it's not. And all of that till it leads to management at large scale changing we know from science and from history, from the social studies, from history, from system science, from the uh, work of people, how knowledge diffuses through uh, society, we know that that means 100 to 200 years from now, it'll be general application or could be. And I don't think your generation and below have got that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a depressing problem, isn't it? And I can actually attest to some of the things you're talking about. I mean, for years, I have been hearing about parts of holistic management and various specific applications that I have tried out in some of the contexts of my own projects and client projects as well. And more and more, I started to realize that this isn't something that you can take and pick little parts of and apply in isolation. But this is a mindset and a way of managing complexity that only works when the entire system or the framework is used together, right? And that's, you know, part of why I'm on this journey to learn this thing thoroughly now. But I also yeah. understand what you're saying and see this continuing to be applied in bits and pieces without connecting the framework that's required to monitor decisions and make 
small changes and correct course along the way rather than just saying, okay, we're going to try this out. And if it doesn't work, it means holistic management doesn't work. I'm sure you must be very tired of seeing that criticism. Oh, Where I, do you I, see I, an opportunity to, to fix that? How does the message get through that this is not uh, a recipe, but it's a way of making your own decisions and using your own observations to make calculated uh, choices and monitor them? Yeah, let me make two points on what you've said. And I'm trying to help everybody who listens to us to learn. First, um, we think in words. So I'm not, I'm doing this as a teaching example, not to belittle you or pick on you, but you can't apply it. You see, so right there, I know you're having a little difficulty mm. in understanding holistic management, because if you... Uh, were my son and I was paying for you to have lessons and music and um, you came home and said I'm learning to apply the violin I'd get very worried that's a good okay. example you cannot apply holistic management so if we talk in words uh, then our uh, and get the words right then our thinking follows you can only practice this and a hundred percent practice there is no theory. If this theory was given by Smuts, and people constantly talk about checking my theory or testing, I don't have a theory. Um, there's just a practice that I've uh, developed, and um, and it's like if we, if nobody listening to us had ever had a bicycle or seen a bicycle, and I had developed a bicycle, riding that is a hundred percent practical. It's not theoretical. Okay, and if I was describing to you what a bicycle is and how to ride it, the more I described, the more confusing it would get. And the more you questioned me and we debated it, the more confusing it would get. But if we had a bicycle with us and you were with me, within an hour, you'd be riding it because it's practical. And it's exactly the same. They, the more people talk about what it is, try and explain it, the more confusing it gets. If we get people together, they do it. They, the universal reaction is, oh, my God, this is just so simple. This is just common sense. So I find everybody that's learning is making it too complicated. And it comes with that application of the language, right? That difference between the, the wording that you just explained right now and the semantics that often get put on top of what you're saying is, a very practical, a very simple concept, but in the complication of explaining it without having a, a demonstration to offer, that's where a lot of the confusion comes in? Well, it, it comes in, like, for example, the moment people use HM or refer to it uh, as, as though it's some entity, uh, you, the, the person you know is in the framework of some sort of management system that you can apply. You see, you can apply an accounting system, you can apply an inventory control system in your business, but you can't run a, a, apply a business system. You, you run your business on continuous process of planning, monitoring, control uh, are happening. And if, if we take um, the, uh, the language uh, we're using. If you were saying to me, um, I'm thinking of applying management in my life, I would say, what the hell's wrong with you? 
Do you see? Yeah. <laughs> so, and if you say you're thinking of using or applying holistic management, you haven't understood it. You said you can manage your life. So you can manage your life holistically, or you can manage your life in the usual universal reductionist way that all humans do. There's just those two choices. It's simple. Now, now the other the thing, when people talk about theories, when, when we were putting in those early 80s, when far-sighted uh, bureaucrats, really, in the Soil Conservation Service of the United States, they knew what I was doing. They'd come and talk to me about it asked if I would provide training and I agreed to do so, provided we opened it to everybody in the universities, World Bank, et cetera. So we put together a, a interagency committee that worked with me. And I said, I wanna go home. So it's, uh, you know, I don't even want to build up a, a business or anything. So they ran it all. I just did the training and teaching. And over two years, we put 2000 professors, others, academics, scientists, land managers in forestry, wildlife, uh, soil conservation service, all the agricultural universities uh, through, through training. So it was an immense effort uh, that's never been done before of trying to see if we could break through with how to deal with desertification with this framework I was developing. Now that's when, with the help of these thousands of people, we finally broke through. Now, we always had strong critics. There were always a few in the group who just couldn't get it and, and became very angry. They would react with anger because clearly it was offensive to their authority. They were professor so-and-so, doctor so-and-so, and this they were saying it's wrong by authority, but proof by authority is what we used in the times of Galileo and Copernicus. That's not science. And so others in the groups would say, well, let's, let's do what we can to fault the science. And we would spend one hour of every day. First hour was spent on trying to find some flaw in the logic, the science, anything else. And we just couldn't. We um, you know, gave up in frustration. And then with one really interesting, one of them said, why don't we test this as a hypothesis? So I said, okay, that's a good idea. Let, let's try that. So what we did was we said, look, managing holistically isn't a hypothesis, but that is the scientific method, is to test uh, something as though it was, like, let's assume it was. So do you all managing holistically means they all understood? And I said, all right, let's treat that as though it was a theory or a hypothesis. Uh, into groups, so we broke up into small groups, six to eight people to a table. And I said, you've got unlimited time. Now try to find some way theoretically to cause this to fail, to cause this way of management to fail. And so that was the task and time was unlimited. And they went at it trying to, because I said, if we can cause this to fail in theory, we're going to run into trouble in practice. And I can tell you what the results were of those exercises. Uh, they would give up in total frustration and said, damn it, you can't even cause this to fail in theory. And I'd say, right, now let's get on with it. But some, a few would still just doggedly keep on, couldn't accept it. Now that's, that's not because they're bad people, it's what we've subsequently learned is, learned is just the difficulty of people to change paradigm, particularly if you've pinned your self-esteem to your knowledge. 
or your academic position. Yeah. Well, that leads perfectly to one of the things that I was interested in understanding is with so many decades of teaching this around the world, what remains one of the more difficult concepts or aspects of this management practice to to convey or that you find people have the most difficulty getting a grasp on? It's just, I would say, probably the utter simplicity. Because even people who've trained with me and gone on and done very, very well, if I revisit them and with them or I listen to them talking to people or coaching people, time and again, I find they're making it too complicated. Uh, it, it's interesting. I would often tell the story. I was once stranded in an airport in, in Mexico City, uh, traffic, weather, something held everything up. And I ended up sitting in a crowded restaurant with a Brazilian civil engineer, he had turned out to be. And we talked about what he did. And my father had been a civil engineer, and I was very fascinated. He was you know, involved in building the new capital. And, um, and then he asked what I did. And I said, you know, I dread that question. I don't know how to answer it, really. And I said, I'm, I'm working on really what I think is the biggest problem ever that's faced humans, which is how to manage complexity, in effect. And this was in the 1980s. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, actually, we're doing well. We're getting some amazing progress. We, we're really making some progress. And uh, he floored me. He just looked at me and said, it must be very simple. And he said, it's an insurmountable problem. We usually find the answer is extremely simple. And that's the biggest difficulty I think I have is people making it complicated. That does make a lot of sense. There is that tendency, especially in the academic world, and for people who are trying to prove theories or practices, that it needs to be dissected and pulled apart, which is kind of the antithesis to the concept of looking at things as wholes and managing in, in that way. Since you have pioneered this way of thinking and managing, and have, I assume, been applying it quite a lot to your own life and your own work for the, that same amount of time. Go remember ahead. I said, remember I said you can't apply it. Yes. I, it's going to take me a while to get through that that wording, like you said. Thank you for the reminder. Um, in your own life, managing things this way and your work, are there any aspects of this that you still struggle to to work into your management decisions or the monitoring aspect or the observations or any of these? No. Since you, you, I guess, sorry to, to clarify a little bit, uh, that analogy with the violin made a lot of sense to me. This is a practice which in concept means that you're working towards a state of mastery. And mastery is not something that you fully achieve. It's something that you work towards, I assume, in this case. Yeah, Where well, do you feel you are in, are in that process? Well, you know, if you're managing your life or managing anything, you're going to be in a constantly training, a changing circumstance because we only manage three things. You know, humans only manage three things. We manage our lives, our uh, organizations, our families, our communities. In other words, we manage humans, we manage nature or the environment, and we manage economy. There's nothing else we manage. We produce millions of things. We produce food, beef, corn, grain, grapes, wine. We produce cell phones, bombs, orchestras, music, museums, uh, planes, trains, you know, all the things around me. These we produce. Uh, so the problem isn't with the things we produce, because those 
are not complex. They stop if you stop producing them. You stop producing food, it stops. Uh, they do what they're intended to do. Food feeds you, a watch tells the time, a computer computes. They're not complex. And the, the problem lies in humans, our inability to manage complexity. That's what is causing climate change and everything else. So what, what, what things are we managing? And that's only the three things I said. We're managing humans, uh, nature, environment, and economy. And you can't manage those independent of each other. You can produce food or bombs, but you can't manage humans and economy indivisibly from nature, as COVID has taught us. I mean, a little virus taught the whole damn world that humans, human health, economy, nature are one. Okay, so they can only be managed one. Now, you can take any individual farmer listening to us with, say, the farmer's family, and they can think, oh, we're in charge of our lives. We can manage our lives holistically. No, they can't. They can only do it to a certain point. So you and I can choose to change the light bulbs or ride a bicycle to work or whatever and uh, begin to manage our lives holistically, but we're operating within a local economy. And that is being manipulated and managed by global financiers driving environmental destruction. So no matter how perfectly we manage our lives, we're doomed. Um, now, we can manage the nature on our farm as much as we can, but it's so tied to everything around us and the atmosphere and everything else that, again, it's not indivisible. So as individuals, we can only do our best, and I do my best. But I, I'm, I can get terribly depressed, just be futile because people around me aren't. Uh, all downstream and so what we've got to do and that's what worries me and why I said if we if we do wonderfully well in showing people what can be done getting people to understand the utter simplicity of managing holistically we know it'll take one to two hundred years and right now you've got global desertification the desertification of the Iberian Peninsula which is bad you've got that you've got um mega fires developing and climate change spiraling feeding on one another spiraling out of control uh, do something about that and we as individuals do anything but incrementally change try to change others around us try to change our communities try to expand using the network and everything else while we're doing that there are other people doing the opposite and expanding mainstream agriculture, mainstream, you know, use of fossil fuels, whatever. And the conflict just continues and continues until a century or two from now, people might be managing holistically. So that, you know, coming back to your early question, what am I trying to do? I'm just thinking, well, in the remaining four or five years actively of my life, the best I can do is to try to find a way of bringing the Berlin Wall down suddenly, a way of, of getting sudden change. And I believe we could do that if we could just get one world leader with the statesmanship and the courage to say, let's do it at scale. Because we, you said it earlier, we can't do bits and pieces. So we need one world leader 
That means one political leader. I think it'll have to be of a small country in deep trouble or uh, dictatorial. It doesn't matter whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy it makes no difference at all because they make policies exactly the same way and um, get them to develop policies holistically because beyond us as individuals lives or our local community everything we manage at larger scale we have to do through a human organization an institution a corporation a church a government a university an environmental organization a farming organization that's how we operate and so when you look at at the scale of, uh, let's call it climate change, desertification, spiraling out of control, we cannot tackle that as individuals. We have to do through, through our institutions. And that means world leaders are in the same position. They can only lead through the policies of these institutions. And that begins with government policies policies of large environmental organizations, everything else as well, but the governments of every country developing their policies. So if we get one small country to just carry on governing as normal, take no political risk, there's no, no need to, and just concurrently say, let's develop policy holistically and see if it's different. If they do that, I promise you, I'll stake my life on it, It'll be totally different and so acceptable to everybody that people will say, oh my God, this was so simple. Mm. So if I, that's what I'm trying to do. So I've just, this morning, I just did a 13, I think it is a 14 minute talk for COP26, but I'll, I'll be talking in an obscure little sideshow on regenerative agriculture with a couple of other uh, exceptional uh, couple of people who are exceptional speakers and um, so it'll be a very small voice and I'll probably be but they're, they're talking about production how do we produce they won't be talking about management of complexity so I know now without needing to be at COP26 that it'll be no better than the previous 25 and if we have another COP100 if we reach that point it will still be discussing the symptoms of our inability to manage complexity. I, I just wish I could find one scientist in the world who would tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, I can understand the discouragement and some of the depression that comes from having this perspective and just knowing that despite all of these efforts, these Congresses, all the money being thrown around, we're still not having the right conversations. No. And maybe that's a good place to kind of turn around a little bit and, and switch gears. I'm, I'm interested because you have been working with people all over the world in so many different applications for many decades now. Can you give me a story of either an individual or a project or a community that you think really exemplifies the full potential and the teachings of holistic management? You know, again, in the interests of simplicity, I'm just going to come down to two examples with you, okay? And they're, they're ones I've used before. There was one group, I was training a group of farmers in, in America, and there was young, one young couple in deep financial trouble, and I really liked them. And we went through a week of the training on holistic financial planning and the decision 
framework and managing their lives and their farm holistically, and then they needed to go home and, and do it. Now, the first step in, in doing that at home was to develop the holistic context, that new concept that's not in any branch of religion or philosophy or science, it is a new concept. And uh, anyway, they did that. And it uh, must have been about a month later, I came into the office and said to me, oh my goodness, Jack and Jill, let's call them. And I, I was really down on that. I, I, I liked them and I thought, damn it. And I, I said, you know, damn it, we didn't catch them in time to save them because we've saved so many people who've been close to bankruptcy. And, uh, and then I saw smiles on faces and I said, well, what's going on? And they said, no, when they got home and developed the holistic context, how they wanted their lives to be tied to their life-supporting environment, the farm, the land, as it'll have to be hundreds of years from now, and their behavior, the first thing they realized was they didn't farm. So the only honest behavior in that situation was to call the family together, find out if anybody in the family wants to be farming because they were only farming because they had the expectancy, a family farm. And they found nobody in the family wanted to be farming. So the first decision was to sell the farm. And that's an absolutely right decision. That's a family agriculture holistically. If they hadn't done that, they'd be in a life of struggle, divorce, whatever. Now, family and move on. So you see the utter simplicity of it. And so many people say, well, selling the farm can't be an example. Well, it is. You could take, uh, you know, I've had others with people just managing their own life. I had one uh, woman with a, raising a single son, and she was stayed with my wife and I for six months and was then going back to Africa to train others. And she said to me one day, couldn't I do this in my own life? And I said, and uh, at our dining room table, and I said, well, who, what are you managing? Well, it's just her and her son she's raising, and you're employed, and yes, no one else. Okay, nobody got veto power over your decisions, it's just you. Yeah, okay. All right, now how do you want your life to be? Write it down. And she wrote down how she wanted her life to be, raising her son, and reasonably prosperous, and so on and so forth, and freedom to pursue her own values and friendships and everything else. And I said, now you don't manage land, but everything comes from the environment or goes back. So how must the environment be hundreds of years from now around you, clean air, clean water, etc. We did that. And I said, now, what about your behavior? You work for other people. You're reliant on other people. You've got to, you may want help. You may want to borrow things, whatever. So how are you going to have to behave for other people to be totally supportive of you? And just begin managing your life that way, making your decisions that way. There are all these checks to see if your actions are in context, but don't bother with them unless you've got a difficult case or something you're really puzzled over. Otherwise, just intuitively start doing that now. And it was about a, 10 days or so later, she came to me and very excited and said, damn it, this works. And I said, what happened? What's your story? And she said she went shopping, had a shopping list, um, went into the supermarket, got one of the trolleys, went around with her son, ticking off the shopping list, putting things in the trolley, got to the checkout counter. There were seven people in front of her. 
So she had to wait. And while she was waiting, she was looking at her checklist and thought, why am I buying this? I need it. Why am I buying this? I desire it. Everything was need, desire, need, desire. And she thought, but what about the holistic context I have for my life about my raising my kid and educating him? And she said she sheepishly went and put half the stuff back on the shelf, realized she didn't need it. That's somebody just beginning to manage their life holistically. So again, I gave you terribly simple examples, but I can literally go to an agricultural policy of a whole nation and we start dealing with it with almost that same simplicity. Just one question at a time, simply breaking it down, looking at the whole in a national holistic context. And it's amazing how harmonious it becomes, how people stop fighting, disagreeing and arguing, because everybody at the end of the day is wanting the same sort of life. Thanks again so much to Alan Savory and his wife, Jody Butterfield, who was so helpful in setting up this call. We'll be back next week to wrap up this interview with Alan Savory, and there we'll be going into some of Alan's stories of people he's come across who exemplify the mindset and practice of holistic management, and it's not the people who you might think. So be sure to tune in next week for the conclusion of this interview. You can find more about Alan's work through the Savory Institute at savory.global. And I also highly recommend the holistic management online training that I'm currently on with Sheila Cook and the 3LM Network. And you can find all of their education resources at 3LM.network. Now, before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations that are happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free for you to join. And unlike other social media platforms, which were created with complex algorithms used to mine your personal data in order to sell you more junk, this channel was created for the free exchange of ideas, stories, and mutual support among the growing regenerative pioneers. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be exploring questions like, how do you currently manage complexity in your life? Do you have a system or a framework that you turn to when things become overwhelming, or do you just make things up as you go? I can tell you I have been on the other side, the make things up side of this for much longer than I have started to work with a framework, but it is very interesting and is showing a lot of promise in changing things positively in my life. So just check out the link on our Instagram account or on our homepage of the website at regenerativeskills.com. And that is our show for this week. Don't forget to take those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way. 